Hi, everybody. Welcome to the broadcast today. We have such an important program for you today because you know what today is? It's New Year's Day, and people talk about a new year, new you. Well, now it's for real. Today's program, we are talking with my personal hero, Chuck Carroll. He is going to share with you his weight loss success, how he lost an incredible 265 pounds, kept it off for eight years. He's going to show you how do you not just get to this amazing success, but how do you stay there with all the bumps in the road that there are in real life? We're going to talk about a vegan diet and all the benefits that it can bring you and how to make today be your first vegan day so that a year from now you've reach all the successes that you have in mind. Uh, we'll talk about some uh, controversial things. Can foods be addictive? Which ones? And if a lot of things are addictive, what can we do about it? We'll also talk about the question of, can you get all the vitamins and all the minerals and complete nutrition from a plant-based diet? The answer is you can, but we'll show you how. So thank you for being with us on today's broadcast, On With The Program. This is The Exam Room brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Be sure to give the show a follow on Twitter at PCRM and go on Facebook, like us there, PCRM.org. Give that a search and you will find the show as well. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Happy New Year to you. I'm joined. I'm excited. You usually don't get a chance to join me for the full show, but I'm sitting across from Dr. Barnard right now. How are you, man? How's the new year? I'm doing great. How are you, Chuck? Uh, man, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. You know, this is, we've got a brand new blue studio like we're really doing some fun things here <laughs> we are and i'm so thrilled that we're doing this together I, I man you know this is just it really is a dream come true for me to be able to do this and kind of merge my media and health worlds together like this is this is just such a phenomenal opportunity so thank you and and thank you to uh dania depa for for making this happen a little behind the scenes thank yous here uh, well it's we two-way street i gotta tell you because it, it's great to have research studies and have uh, find out the truth about diets and so forth. But if nobody ever hears about it, that's no good. So that's why we need to, to partner medical science with a big megaphone to get the word out there. So I wanted to share my story with you. I know you know that I lost 265 pounds, but I love telling people how I did that, and hopefully it inspires other people to follow suit. Like Absolutely. Nothing makes me happier than for somebody to come up to me and say, you're such an inspiration, and, you know, you convinced me to go on, you know, a diet, and I've, you know, dropped all this weight, and I've never felt better. Like, to me, that is the best feeling in the world. So hopefully today we can do uh, more of that. So at my heaviest, yeah, I was 420 pounds, and I'm 5'6 on a good day on a good day. So that's like a 66 inch waist. That's a size 6L shirt, 6XL. And I was, I wasn't even 30. I was like 26 years old when I got to my heaviest and I could already feel my chest tighten when I walked, like literally Dr. Barnard, just across the street, um, profusely sweating, had to stop. And I just, I didn't feel good and I didn't feel good about myself. Um, physically, mentally, like none of that was good, but I was so woefully addicted to food. And I know that that's something that you've studied quite a bit, you know, the sad diet, the standard American diet, it just so addictive. And I remember there were nights I would try to lose weight and I would be on this diet, I'd be going really well, and then I would just lose it. I would get angry, like I was detoxing, and I would sneak out in the middle of the night and I would go to Taco Bell. 
and I would load up on like $20 worth of food and it was probably like 4,500 calories in one shot. And that was my cycle. That was my cycle every day. I think I tallied it up. I was eating somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 calories a day. Like I was going to die. And Amazing. Yeah. And I got, I got desperate. Um, so what, what, what age did this start? I was always overweight. Yeah. I mean, I was introduced to unhealthy food. Jeez. Uh, I mean, one of my earliest memories was going through the drive through at Burger King and, and getting a double cheeseburger ketchup only. Um, and I mean, that was, that was just it. You know, I, I love my mother, single mother, you know, worked and you just had to do what was quick. And my grandma who, you know, helped raise my brother and I as well. She didn't really know much about healthy living back then either, nor did my dad when we saw him. So kind of, kind of fighting an uphill battle there a little bit. And, uh, you grow up and you just you get used to that and your body starts craving that and and you just get addictive and so over the years you know i just got progressively heavier and heavier and heavier i was almost 300 pounds when i graduated from high school and then you know get up 10 years later and and you know there i am at 420 so i needed to make a change and i made this radical decision to have weight loss surgery at that time i knew nothing about plant-based living. I knew absolutely zero about it. Vegan was kind of a buzzword that I just, I could never see myself going that route. I was, you know, such a meat and dairy guy. And, but a funny thing happened, you know, years after the surgery, I kind of stumbled upon the physician's committee, the best thing that ever happened to me. But you go through this procedure and you come out on the other side and you feel like you've been hit by a truck. And you can go one of two ways then. You can either treat it like you have every other diet that got you there, and you can go back to your old ways, or you can radically change your lifestyle. That's what you need to do. The sad part about this is so many people have this surgery, and they go right back to what it was that they were doing. My father in particular, I love him to death. He had this procedure lost a, an enormous amount of weight. But I remember it was just a month or two after his surgery that he was back at Taco Bell. And I asked him, I was still overweight at this point, what in the world are you doing? And he said, it's just easier for me to do this. And I was like, and I knew right then he was going to be in trouble. And he ended up putting the weight back on. He did. He did. I love him to death. He's, he's still around. Um, put about 85% of it back on. You know, so many people have the idea that if they have weight loss surgery, that's it. You've, you've solved the problem, you've removed all the weight, um, but it can be devastating to find what actually does happen to so many people is that weight starts coming back um, and all of, uh, all of the results of the surgery are really lost. Yeah, it, it, it becomes just like any other diet. You know, people assume that their stomach is always, you know, can just hold four ounces, you know, the size of the thumb, but it doesn't, you know, there's the, the stomach is very much elastic and it expands back out. And if you're not careful, you can absolutely put all of that weight back on and more. Um, I, I did not want to do that. And there's this period in there where for that first couple of months where you can't physically tolerate those foods or you will get violently ill. And that is not a pleasant experience. Um, so I detoxed off of that. Like it was a literal detox. And there were nights when I would just be in cold sweats and just like angry because I wasn't able to get my fix anymore, you know? Um, and 
I remember watching, this is so funny, watching VH1 and, and Dr. Drew's celebrity rehab and seeing what those guys were going through. And I was like, I can really identify with a lot of what's going on here. And that's when it kind of dawned on me. I was like, okay, well, maybe addiction is addiction is addiction. And your brain kind of treats that stuff the same way. Am I correct? Like they're the same pleasure centers get, get triggered, whether it's food or narcotic or alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in brain scanning studies, you can you can look at what's happening in the brain and the reward center is where you're focusing on the dopamine is released. And that's true for alcohol. It's true for every every drug of abuse, true for cocaine, true for heroin, true for cigarettes. Right. Um, But also true not for a strawberry or a peach or a little celery or something <laughs> like that. It's, um, it's really two things. It's, it's number one, just physically overeating mm-hmm. will do it. Um, and I don't know if it's the stretch receptors of the stomach or something like that, but overeating seems to do it. And also what I'm going to call junk foods will do it. The cheese, the chocolate, um, those things will, will cause the, the very same brain centers to light up the same centers as for, for illegal drugs. It's fascinating to me. So the component there, nutrition, I felt like I, I got a handle on. And of course, exercise was was another big thing. But I remember, you know, every failed diet that I'd done before, what's the first thing people do? They go out, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get this gym membership. And they go to the gym faithfully for three weeks, four weeks, maybe two months. And then they stop going to the gym. It's just the combination for so many for a failed diet. I didn't do that this time. I said, I'm going to do everything differently. So I just decided I was going to walk. And like I said before, the first thing, I could barely walk across the street, but I did. Then I walked around the block, and then it became two blocks and three blocks and then a mile. Eventually, it built up to where I was walking five miles every day on my lunch break. And God bless the people I was working for at the time. They gave me an extended lunch break just so I could get in those five miles. Like, they were on board with the Chuck Carroll weight loss program. And, um, of course, I had to make up that extra half hour on the back end of the day, but that's okay. That is great. And, you know, didn't require a gym, and that made it so much easier for me. And I think that that was a big part of my success. And and now, like, that's still 90% of my exercise program is just getting everything built into my day. It's the little things, you know, stairs, not the elevator, you know, walk, you know, use the bathroom on a different Mm -hmm. floor. Like, such simple things like that that when you're overweight, you completely dismiss. But I think, you know, as a physician— I mean, you have to see some some value when doing things like that. Um, as a physician, yes, but I got to tell you something. When I was uh, between my junior and senior years of college, I was a taxi driver in Boston. And while I was behind the wheel, I discovered something. You're moving around all day, but your body isn't moving at all. And that was the first experience I ever had with the, kind of the reverse of what you're saying. You are strapped in, absolutely immobile for maybe eight or nine hours. And even though I was young and relatively fit, I could feel the effects of being just absolutely immobile. And I started to, to think, okay, even, you know, not necessarily going to the gym and running flat out for five miles. I'm talking about just walking and getting out and doing things so that your body can burn a few calories yeah. here or there. So, yeah, no, yeah, as a physician, yes. But I think that you can really experience this for yourself very easily. And how many people are at their desk all day long doing this? The exercises in their, in their fingertips and nowadays – in the thumbs. Right. Right. We're all thumb <laughs> warriors. Um, but, you know, it, it's just the simple things like that that make all the difference. And one of the things that keeps me motivated the most is one particular memory. And it's it's kind of a downer. Um, 
and that is what I called the walk of shame. Shortly before I had the surgery, I had to attend a conference on the West Coast in San Francisco. And you're 420 pounds. Obviously, you're not going to be able to fit into the airplane seat without a seatbelt extender. And, you know, humbly embarrassed, you ask for that as you board the plane. And then you see the stares from everybody that's already on there. And they're just thinking, please, oh, please don't let this guy sit next to you, sit next to me. And I understood their position, but that was devastating emotionally. And I consider myself a macho guy. I have no problem telling you it was devastating. So I sympathize with everybody that is severely overweight because I guarantee they've had at least one experience like that. And so I think that it's important that you think back to those times. Don't dwell on them, but you think back to it, and that kind of keeps you also on the straight and narrow a little bit. I never want to relive that. No. Yeah. Not in a million years. And I don't wish that on my worst enemy. But now when did you go to a vegan diet? Um, the funny thing is, was not vegan, and I was hosting a radio show with the Washington Redskins player at the time, and wound up doing a, uh, a PSA campaign uh, with you guys, and that was the first time I learned about the Physicians Committee. I was thrilled to be able to go talk on Capitol Hill, like, right. that was awesome. So then I started studying up, and then, um, <laughs> and so... Uh, then what really pushed me over the edge was I did an interview with uh, a professional wrestler who is 100% plant-based, a guy by the name of Austin Aries. Yeah. And uh, he was telling me, you know, what to read, what to watch, you know, just study up. And I was like, where has this been my whole <laughs> life? And I yeah. went and I thought I was healthy after losing the weight. No. I mean, now I'm just like, I'm in overdrive. Like, I'm shooting to live to 100. Like, I just feel so yeah. great. My mood changed. Physically, I feel phenomenal. Like, I'm, I'm just the most optimistic guy in the world now. It's, yeah. it's great. It's absolutely great. There's something in that asparagus, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Love the asparagus. Way better than Prozac. There, there, yeah, there, there's something in there. So. Well, fantastic. What, what an amazing success. Thank you. You know, you know because i got to say, it's, you, you talked about what you said, the, the, get going on the airplane and feeling terrible and never wanting to, to relive that. Mm -mm. But you must have the opposite experience now where people see you now and what you have achieved um, because it's it's a physical achievement mm -hmm. but it's it's also a psychological achievement it's your arm wrestling with something um, that had if I can put it this way kind of got the better the better of you before sure and um, that's fabulous for you and ten times as fabulous for all the other people who hear what you have done and think Chuck you're giving that to me they're thinking that they can do that. That's all I want to do. So good on you, man. Pay it forward. All right, stick around. Uh, you and I, we have much to discuss. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to go over all the health benefits of going vegan. I've experienced some of these. Yeah. But you're going to break it down as the doctor. You are listening to The, uh, the Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Welcome back to The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Happy New Year. This is all about a new year and a new you. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And uh, Dr. Barnard, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? I am. we got 
lots of people following us on Twitter. I believe you're you're Doctor at Doctor Neil Barnard. Pretty Uh-oh, simple. Don't ask me that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> it. I'm pretty. That. We're yes. we're gonna put a link up to uh, to your Twitter account on uh, pcrm.org/podcast. This way, I have deniability. A- absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but you know, you also have that blue check mark by your name on there. One of these days, Twitter's gonna give me that blue check mark. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm impressed. Um, the health benefits of going vegan. I mean, we could talk about these for days and centuries even. Um, But as this is New Year, New You, and we are talking to people who are starting their vegan journey today, let's start with the basics, man. I mean, the big ones, weight loss. It just, it came naturally for me as soon as I went plant-based. Yeah. It's it's for many people the number one reason why they go to a vegan diet, uh, because weight loss is is just practically automatic. And the beauty of it is it starts like right away. Now, you don't want to go for super fast weight loss. What you want to go for is permanent weight loss. Um, so it can take its time. Now, some people do lose weight really quickly, um, some more gradually. But can I maybe mention why? Yeah, abso- absolutely. Because you know, I got to tell you, Chuck, some people like, what are you talking about? How can I possibly lose weight? Because you're eating all those carbs. You're eating rice. Mm-hmm. You're eating potatoes. You're eating bread. You're eating spaghetti. And there's no limit in the research studies we do, there's no limit on how much you're eating. And so people sometimes who have, who have been dieting, they're afraid. But a couple things become clear soon. First of all, carbohydrates have only four cal. This will not be on the test. Uh, <laughs> carbohydrates have only four calories per gram. Maybe it will be on the test. This is important. Uh, carbohydrates, whether it's from bread or pasta or rice, have only four calories in a gram, but fats have nine calories. So what if I throw out all that fatty meat and all that fatty cheese, that's nine calories per gram, I'm losing, and I'm eating rice instead, only four calories per gram in the carbs. Um, So suddenly we realize why people in Japan were always really skinny while they were eating rice. Right. And why they gained weight when McDonald's came in and put in burgers and, and cheese and so forth, and, and they moved away from rice. So anyway, when you're on a plant-based diet, you're eating the healthy grains and beans and vegetables and fruits. You're not eating much fat. So it's, it's naturally low in calories. But there's two other things. Just real quick, uh, everything you're eating has fiber in it, Yeah. vegetables and beans. Fiber has effectively no calories, but it fills you up. So you just push away from the table quicker. And the third thing, in research studies, we have been measuring people's calorie burning speed, their metabolism, and it actually increases a little bit on a vegan diet. And at some point, I'd love to share with you why that is. But your your after meal calorie burn. Yeah. Uh, in a study that we published back a decade ago, we found that in, in people not worrying about how much they eat, they just go to a low-fat vegan diet, their after-meal calorie burn bumps up by about 16%. Is that the resting metabolic rate? Um, it's The resting metabolic rate is where you start, and then you have breakfast, and now it's your postprandial calorie burn or after-meal burn, and that's the one that goes up. And it'll go up for maybe three, four hours. You think, well, what good, what good is that? You know, a three, three or four hours calorie burn happens after every meal. Mm-hmm. So 16% is not a lot. But if I get a 16% advantage after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner, that can add up to some real weight loss over time. So a vegan diet, naturally modest in calories. It's got the fiber to turn off your appetite fairly promptly. Right. Um, and third, it gets your metabolism more back to like when you were 16 years old. Sure. 
and with weight loss, wow, it's 16, that's awesome. Uh, with, with the weight loss, obviously, comes a slew of other health benefits, you know, lower cholesterol, uh, lower blood pressure. We've heard uh, countless stories upstairs from the Barnard Medical Center, you know, people even reversing type 2 diabetes. I mean, this yes. is this is just a, almost a cure-all. Yeah, well, I always encourage people, don't fire your doctor. If you've got diabetes, that's a serious condition. Sure. Same for high cholesterol, whatever. But run, do not walk to a vegan diet. Um, if a person has diabetes, particularly if you catch it early, you've got a good shot of getting rid of it completely. Um, if you've had diabetes for a longer period of time, you still want to go to a vegan diet. It'll improve. In some cases, it will go away. And most importantly, those complications of nerve pain or where your kidneys are attacked or your, or your eyes might be attacked, the likelihood of any of those things can be dramatically reduced mm -hmm. by a healthy diet and lifestyle. So um, do talk to your doctor about it. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing. When people go on a vegan diet, their blood sugars start to go down and down and down and down. And if they're also on insulin, it can go down so low that you'll start to shake. You know, you, you, oh, got, wow. you got hypoglycemia. So um, I always encourage people to, say, to, to, to speak with their doctor, let them know they're doing this vegan diet so the doctor can adjust their medications down when the time comes. But yeah, go for that. You know, don't go the rest of your life just thinking, got diabetes, it's always going to be this way, nothing I can do about it, I'm going to be on a sack full of medications forever. Maybe, but let's give you a shot at, at reducing that or maybe getting rid of it completely. So those are ailments that you have already, but as we know, nutrition is also big for preventative medicine. You know, just the benefits as far as like lowering the risk for chronic diseases, I mean, that is just staggering. But seen just more than a dozen links between food and cancer now, right? Well, Yes, um, and the st statistics are, are frightening. Uh, a third of women get cancer at some point. Mm. Uh, breast cancer, uterine cancer, colorectal cancer. Uh, for men, same story, prostate cancer and others. Um, and you're not going to eliminate all of that, but a plant-based diet can, can hugely reduce the risk. So you throw out the cigarettes, you throw out the meat and the, the cheese and so forth, eat healthy things, and your risk of cancer goes way, way down. What about Alzheimer's? That, I got to tell you, Alzheimer's is, I think, the, 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 the new frontier. We used to think it was all old age and genetics. But in 1993, the Chicago Health and Aging Project started looking at diet and found that when you make certain diet changes, or, or when you follow certain diet patterns, I really should say, um, the risk of Alzheimer's is much lower. And it turns out that it's almost exactly like what's good for the heart more plant foods, mm -hmm. uh, getting away from the saturated fat that's in dairy and in meat and so forth. Um, these things seem to not just protect the heart, they also seem to protect the brain. And one of the things that fascinates me is epigenetics. And Alzheimer's, unfortunately, is, is very prominent in my family. And I'm, I'll be flat out honest with you. I'm terrified of, of getting that when I'm older. So I'm trying to do everything in my power to, you know, lower that, that risk. But um, that there is a strong link there between, you know, say twins, you know, one goes plant-based, the other one doesn't, one gets right. Alzheimer's, the other one doesn't. There is a gene called the ApoE Epsilon 4 allele. Um, you, you get this gene from mom. Uh, your risk of having Alzheimer's has just been tripled. Mm. If you got it from dad too, so you got it from both sides of your family, your risk is 10 to 15 times higher than other people. Mm. So up until this point, neurologists have said, I can do your blood tests and I can tell you, and then it's just a question of getting old enough for this to hit. No, um, genes are not 
destiny. And if you have those genes, but you follow a healthy lifestyle, those genes may never become active. And we learned about this, actually, we learned about this with smoking. There are genes for lung cancer. there are. There are genes that, that if you've got this gene, you're at a higher risk for lung cancer. What does the gene do? What the gene does is it makes it harder for your body to eliminate carcinogens. So you're a smoker, you inhale, the carcinogens go into your lungs, and you, genetically you can't get rid of the carcinogens, you get lung cancer. Somebody else who doesn't have that gene, they can get rid of the carcinogens more easily. But, what's, but what does that mean? Even if I got the gene, if I never smoked, then the carcinogens aren't going into me. So who cares if I got the gene or not? Um, all the gene did was make it harder to, to clean myself out. Same with diabetes. There are genes for diabetes, but if I don't eat unhealthy foods and I lace up my sneakers every now and then, um, can I reduce my risk of diabetes? Absolutely. And that is also true for Alzheimer's. Researchers in Scandinavia looked at memory problems in older folks and those who were avoiding the bad fats, cheese, ice cream, meat, People who are generally avoiding them had about 80% reduced risk wow. of memory problems compared to those who were digging into the big fats, even if they had the genes that should bring them there. I'm sure that's going to bring comfort to a, a lot of people who are kind of in the same position I am, you know, just fearful. Well, we're right to be afraid. I mean, when you get Alzheimer's, you lose everything. Yeah. Um, and I have it in my family, too, and, and that's true of, you know, lots of people. Um And this is why I wrote this book, Power Foods for the Brain, that we're going to talk about in a future episode, I hope. Yeah. Um, Because there is so much that a person can do to move the needle in a healthier direction. Outstanding. Uh, I mean, we, like I said at the top, I mean, we could just go on about this for days. I mean, there's just so many good health benefits that, that come with a plant-based diet. But the show must go on. So uh, we're going to hit a quick pause. We're going to come back and uh, we're going to talk about why American foods are so addictive. That's standard American diet. Stick around. You are listening to The Exam Room brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Continuing now with New Year, New You here on The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll and Dr. Neil Barnard. Uh, We are talking all things plant-based and how to feel better here in the new year. And one of the things that many people struggle with, especially when they start uh, making any sort of changes to their diet, is... They're addicted to the foods that they have been eating. I mean, food addiction is something that isn't really talked about in the same vein as alcohol or drugs or tobacco, but, I mean, it's just as powerful. Yeah, it's it's real. Um, it was a controversial thing in the world of psychiatry. Can you really be addicted to foods in the same ways you could be addicted to, to heroin? And some people wanted to say no. And, and I have to say, the experience of the user, very soon people say, wait a minute, um, all the, all, all the indices of addiction, I've got them. It's something that's cyclical. It's something that I crave when it's not there. It's something I'm preoccupied with. It's something I hide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I'm paying a physical price for. Um, so anyway, what really happened was uh, maybe 20 years ago or, or somewhere thereabouts, uh, psychiatrists started to say, all right, chocolate. We'll give you chocolate. That, that, that can be addictive. <laughs> but but then that, that opened kind of the floodgates to other things. Um, but I got to tell you, Chuck, it is not strawberries. Um, it is not oranges and apples. So a person doesn't 
get up at, at night and go to the 7-Eleven and get 25 apples and eat them or a bushel of asparagus. It, it's certain foods um, that we do, do tend to get hooked on. Uh, what are some of the more addictive ones? You know, I'd like to think that Americans uh, can sometimes be a slave to the burger. So what yeah. are some of the more addictive foods? Uh, I'm going to give you four. Um, number one, sugar. Mm-hmm. And you could see this in a newborn baby. Um, you, yes, you have a, a little baby born today. And let's say you're in the hospital and you're going to do a little heel stick to draw a drop of blood for a blood test. If you dribble sugar water into the baby's mouth just before you do the heel stick, the baby cries less. Now, I'm not suggesting this as a form of anesthesia, but it's been widely recognized by people in healthcare that sugar is sort of a painkiller. Um, and then pretty soon, grandparents know that if you've got the sugary stuff when the kids come over, they want to visit grandma and grandpa more often. Um, and then when you're an adult, you're not having the same sugary goo that maybe a, a child might have. Or are we? Hmm. Um, we have it with sodas and so forth. Um, sugar, that's number one. Number two, uh, chocolate really is addicting, but it's not just that it's sugary. Um, there are other compounds in chocolate. Uh, there is sugar. There is something called theobromine, which is sort of like caffeine only. Um, it's, a, it's a slight variant on caffeine. It's a mild stimulant. Um, if you have a dog and the dog says, don't give your dog chocolate, it can kill him, that's the theobromine. They, oh, wow. they can they can do it. Okay. Um, and there are other there are other compounds in the chocolate. So that's my number two addictive. But does that go for a straight cacao as well? Because I know that's a popular additive in smoothies is straight one hundred percent cacao powder. Here's the problem with that. Um, here's here's why that's of less concern. Um, when you if if you want to make chocolate addictive, you got to go beyond just straight chocolate because it's rather bitter. It's just an ingredient, and it, in fact. Interesting history fact. Um, it was not until about 1850 or thereabouts that people actually made chocolate tolerable. Mm. Um, the Native American populations had chocolate uh, that Columbus brought back to uh, Europe, a bitter substance that they made beverages out of. Not really racing for stardom here. Um, <laughs> but what happened in the middle of the 1800s is that people found that if you mix a little more of the cocoa butter, and you add a sweetener, like some chocolate, and something to kind of tone it down, like vanilla. Ah, mm-hmm. now we got something ready for prime mm-hmm. time. <laughs> um, but to this day, the chocolate manufacturers are always figuring out what's the right combination of ingredients to get you hooked. Uh, number three, cheese. Um, cheese actually has opiates in it. Yeah, no surprise you wrote the cheese trap. Well, that's because we want to know why the heck is this addictive. And there are opiate chemicals in the casein protein in milk, which are concentrated in cheese, that attach to the same receptors of the brain that heroin attaches to. And number four is meat. Um, You can give an opiate-blocking drug to Hank, and (laughs) suddenly this this meat-addicted guy... Uh, likes meat less. Wow. Um, and b- by the way, the opiate addicting, uh, the opiate blocking drug is not a treatment. It's it's a research tool that sure. we use to separate what are addictive, what what are brain active foods and which are not. So sugar, chocolate, cheese, meat, and I might say also just anything with a lot of fat and a lot of salt, uh, potato chips, onion rings, uh, cheeses in that category too. We tend to get hooked on those. All of them, all these things I just mentioned, go to the brain trigger the release of dopamine in the brain, and you can see the brain scans light right up, uh, which is not going to do so much with brown rice and a potato and and healthy foods. You know, those foods are good, 
but they aren't going to drive your brain into into the excessive brain activity. What about uh, people who don't necessarily have an addictive personality? Is there, or Do they still have the same risk for developing that sugar addiction, that addiction to cheese? Yes, mm. I, I, I think so. Um, now, there's a couple things. Uh, we used to say it was all personality, and the whole idea was your parents' fault, um, or you had a bad upbringing, um, you're traumatized, whatever, and so now this is your comfort food. I think half of that is true. I, th- I think the truth is this is a comforting food. Mm-hmm. But you can have had the most wonderful partridge family upbringing, <laughs> and, and you can still be addicted to anything. And that's partly for the reason I was mentioning earlier is the manufacturers are trying to figure out how to make foods um, attractive. In the same way as I don't care who you are, I don't care what your upbringing was like, can you get hooked on tobacco if you light up? Yes. Of course. Of course you will. And that's true for most people. But let me take this one step further. We were doing a research study a number of years ago, and I was struck by how many people would crave cheese and so forth. Everybody happened to have diabetes in the study. I did blood tests, and I found a single gene that caused these people to have too little dopamine activity in their brain. They were born with that gene. Hmm. And it turned out that they had an exaggerated response to junk food because it would give them the dopamine that they were missing. So if you don't have that gene and you're getting dopamine activity normally, uh, you are less set up for addiction. If you have this gene that gives you too few dopamine receptors in the brain, which is what it's doing, then you want anything to stimulate those dopamine receptors, which can be alcohol, it can be drugs. It could be compulsive gambling. Um, yeah. Anything. And it can be junk food. Yeah. <laughs> it is for so many. So new year, new you, we're trying to better ourselves. What's the best way to start to break that addictive pattern? I know that some people are advocates of going cold turkey. Other people yeah. taper off. What do you find is the best, best method there? Uh, I think everybody finds their own way. I have to say, personally, I think that getting to zero is, is what you want to do, as opposed to moderation. Okay, cheese isn't so good, but I should have it in moderation. Right. Um, if you are having an unhealthy food extremely rarely and you're paying no price for it and it's not hurting your life at all, okay. But on the other hand, if you've got weight you're trying to lose, if your diabetes is getting out of control, let's take this seriously. And in the same way as it's easier to quit smoking completely than to have a cigarette on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, yeah. okay, um, it's just easier. Um, it is so much easier to go to a completely vegan diet and leave that meat aside, leave that cheese aside, than to have it dangling in front of you every now and then. Why? Because when you have it again, it reawakens all the memories, all the taste buds, all the desire, which had gone to sleep. Yeah. Imagine if you're a smoker and you quit. It's two months. Uh, two months have gone by. You're no longer hooked, and you're, th- you're thinking about it less and less and less and less and less. Light up once, and it all comes back. And it's the same with food. So some people will think, all right, vegan diet's got to be tough. Not really very tough. And the beauty of it is it allows you to just get some distance from the things that are hurting you. And, you know, the cool part, though, I think that when I broke through to the other side was just the confidence that I gained from really accomplishing something that was tremendously difficult. So I think then that there is a, a great positive mental upside to breaking this addiction as well. The, the payoff is huge. Um, we did a study a few years ago with Geico, the car insurance mm-hmm. company, um, and the study was focusing on weight loss and diabetes, but we, we gave questionnaires to people to rate their mood, depression, anxiety in particular. 
um, and also things like job absenteeism. Those things got better too. That wasn't the target of it, but it was either there's something magical about this food or there's something magical about feeling the health return to your body. Yeah. You know, the weight loss is coming off. My blood sugar is going down. Uh, I've got power that, and I've got control that I didn't have before. That's amazing. That is amazing. Uh, again, another topic, man. We could just go for days on. Uh, I'm going to bring you back another time. We're going to dive specifically into cheese because I know that that's one that you've spent an inordinate amount of time studying. Uh, you've got that book, The Cheese Trap. So uh, we're going to bring you back here in the near future. We're going to talk all about the queso and why it should be case no. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but for now, we got to take a, a little short break here on the exam room. Uh, we're going to come back and we're going to uh, debunk some uh, vegan diet myths. Sound good? You bet. You're listening to the exam room brought to you by the physicians committee in the home stretch here on the exam room brought to you by the physicians committee new year new you is the topic and of course those who are going vegan today today is the big day there still may be some questions lingering in their brain they 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 know some questions, maybe some myths, maybe some untruths, maybe their friends have said something, maybe their family has said something, maybe they're just curious about it. But Dr. Barnard, we need to debunk some of these myths here. You bet. One of the big ones I think that uh, non-vegans have is that you just can't get enough protein in your diet without meat. True or false? You know, it's a funny thing. Um, back in the 1950s, Dietitians looked at it, and it became very, very clear that there's abundant protein in plant products. But that question just will not die. <laughs> every, every new vegan, you're at a party, and other people, the, the first thing they have to say is, where do you get your protein? The person asking doesn't necessarily know what protein is, right. but they have to ask you where you're getting it. Um, so it, it is a myth. The idea that a vegan diet is going to be low in protein, complete myth. So, But let me give you a couple details. Um, the first thing is if you went to the zoo and you looked at the biggest elephant there or the tallest giraffe or you went to a racetrack and you saw the, the fastest stallion or you looked out in the field and you saw the biggest bull, th these are all vegans. Mm -hmm. um, they've got rippling musculature. Um, where do they get it? Uh, do plants actually have protein? Yeah, uh, they do. Let me give you some numbers. Let's say you're eating uh, a typical diet. The average person might get maybe 2,000 calories of, of just food every day. And the government would say, if you're a man, maybe 56 grams of protein is what you need. Okay, I'm gonna do it all vegan. In fact, all I'm gonna do for a day as an experiment, all I'm gonna do is eat broccoli, nothing but broccoli. Do you know, not that you should do this, but if you did, you would get 147 grams of pure protein just from the broccoli. So about three times as much as your body actually needs. Um, okay, next day, we're gonna do the experiment. Now, only lentils, nothing but lentils. For a, a day, I'm gonna get 2,000 calories worth of just lentils. Is there any protein in that? 157 grams of pure wow. protein. So hopefully you're not doing just broccoli or just lentils, you're doing a mixture of these things. If you ate nothing but corn, you would get uh, protein as well. And if you mix them together, then you get the, all the different, what are called essential amino acids. That, those are the building blocks of protein. And most all foods have, most plant foods have all of them, but in different combinations. And any, any combination of just normal plant foods, the vegetables and the beans and the grains and some fruits, that gives you the protein your body needs. What about spinach? Can, can spinach really keep you pumped like Popeye? Spinach has 
protein. It's all, and it's also got iron. That's what Popeye was thinking about. Iron no. along with protein. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, can we talk about athletes? You know lots of athletes. Yeah. You, know, you have worked with many, 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 Big many. Big sports guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so people think, all right, you're an athlete. You need more protein. Uh, true. But you don't need more protein from animal products at all. Think of it this way. An athlete is sedentary, doing nothing, needs oxygen. The, when, the, when he or she breathes, the oxygen comes in as part of air. And now we're exercising. It's the season. We're working hard. Uh, am I breathing more? Yes. Am I getting more oxygen? Yes. Do I need an oxygen tank? No. Um, so if I'm sedentary, I need a certain amount of protein. If I'm working out more, do I need more protein? Yes. You eat food. Protein is part of the food. And you just get the protein you need without any special supplements. Hmm. You can supplement if you want. There's plenty of vegan pure protein supplements, but it's not something you really need. Then the question becomes, okay, if we're not short on protein, maybe we're missing out on some vitamins and minerals. B12 is the biggest concern among people who are plant-based, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a legitimate question, but it's a real easy one, too. Uh, B12 is interesting. It's not made by animals, and it's not made by plants. Hmm. B12, vitamin B12, which you need for healthy nerves and healthy blood, is actually made by bacteria. And <laughs> Who knew? That's right. And the reason it's associated with animal products is that in the digestive tract of a cow, uh, there are bacteria, and they make B12, and it gets into the meat, and you eat the meat, you get the B12. Um, you happen to have those same bacteria in your gut, and they make B12 too, but whether you absorb it is really not clear. Um, most people would say, no, it's made by bacteria that are too far along in your digestive tract, and you can't absorb it. Um, so many people speculate that before the advent of modern hygiene, the bacteria in the soil, on our fingers, in our mouths, would create this tiny bit of B12 that we need. The human requirement is 2.4 micrograms. It's very, very little. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea was before modern hygiene, we would get that just from daily life. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, so I encourage people to not play around with it and to take a B12 supplement. Uh, how much? A small one. Uh, when you go to the store, they, they all have more than 2.4 micrograms, and some of them have 10,000 micrograms. Right. Just take the kind of the smallest one you can find. If you take a multiple vitamin, it's got um, B12 in it too, but you don't want to miss it. So what other vitamins then should we be looking at as far as supplementation? Uh, really just one, I think, and that's vitamin D. Now, vitamin D, uh, its natural source is sunlight. Sun on your skin, everybody knows, creates vitamin D. And when human beings were living in Africa, uh, in equatorial Africa, there's plenty of sun. You don't need a vitamin D supplement. But we had the bad judgment to move to North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> or at least my forebears did. Right. Or maybe New Jersey or Finland or you name it. And there's not a lot of sun there necessarily. And it's kind of cold sometimes times a year. And frankly, you can be in Florida. And if you're using sunscreen, you're not getting the vitamin D either. Interesting. Yep. So what do you do? You take a vitamin D supplement in that case. Um, if you're getting regular sunlight about 20 minutes a day on your face and arms, fine. But if you're not, uh, take a vitamin D supplement, about 2,000 international units a day is what most doctors would say. Calcium, tied very closely to that vitamin D. Oh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Chuck, because uh, what do you need vitamin D for? You need it to absorb calcium. That's right. Ding, it, ding. It, it's also a cancer preventer to hmm. a degree. But you do need calcium. Um, and so what's the question? All right, uh, would I, uh, I get calcium from dairy. I'm not eating dairy. Where can I get the, the calcium? Um, 
The answer is that cows don't make calcium. Cows do not make calcium, period. Um, that's a myth, the bunker. The calcium is in the earth. It's in the ground. It's in the soil. And grass grows out of the soil, and it carries the calcium up into the grass. The cow eats the grass, and the calcium just ends up in the milk. Now, you can eat green vegetables, too, hopefully not grass. <laughs> but if you're eating kale, collards, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, green vegetables, they take the calcium from the earth, and it's actually more absorbable in the green vegetable than it is as milk. Huh. And I'll give you a couple numbers. Um, milk, about 30%, 32% of the calcium is absorbed. The rest just flushes through you. Hmm. Um, for green vegetables, closer to 50%, maybe higher. Wow. And, and broccoli, if I'm not mistaken, that is a calcium powerhouse, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it sure is. Um, the, the, all the cruciferous vegetables named for their cross-shaped flowers um, have calcium. So that's broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, cauliflower calcium rich um, and if you're not eating those foods you're, you're missing a whole lot more than calcium so bring those in you can have broccoli for breakfast if you want so these are healthy foods and matter of fact i mean that just brings me to my next question is how do we ensure then that we are getting everything that we need because obviously you know we're we, we've known about the food pyramid we've been taught that our entire lives but that's not necessarily the route that you want to take. So as, as somebody who is vegan, you know, what is, what is the equivalent of the food pyramid? Great. There? Okay. Fabulous. Here's the way to do it. And, and we have rated diets, and there is a tool that was developed at Harvard University. It's a rating system that allows us to look at the healthfulness of a diet that you're adopting. It's called the Alternate Healthy Eating Inventory um, or Alternate Healthy Eating Index. So here's what you do. Um, Four healthy food groups should be your staples. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and legumes, or that's the bean group, beans, sure. peas, lentils. So vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and legumes. And if you're building your diet from those and leaving the animal products out, you're going to get plenty of vitamins. You're going to get the mi minerals you need. But two uh, additional points. Emphasize the green leafy vegetables. They've really got such health power mm -hmm. and include a B12 supplement. That's it. If you're never getting any sun, got to think about vitamin D, but that's it. Those healthy four food groups, think about the greens, uh, vitamin B12. And this is also the formula for a healthy kid's diet, too. So you got a six-year-old child who says, I'm going vegan, best decision he or she could ever make. Four healthy food groups, B12, you're set. You know, uh, we're going to touch on that in a future show about, uh, you know, kids and school lunches and trying to clean up that whole mess. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of work to be done there, but... Uh, Thanks. Thanks for touching on that. That's a good plug, man. You bet. I like that. Uh, home stretch here. Uh, stick around. We've got a recipe to give you. But uh, for right now, you're listening to the exam room brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Delicious time here on the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Happy New Year to you, and we are um, ringing in the new year with a delicious recipe, a favorite. If you're a new vegan, this is going to be near and dear to your heart because this could be a favorite food that you did not need to give up. So to help us, we welcome to the show Chef Bev. How are you, Chef? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. Happy New Year. Thank you. Your book... Nouveau V contains nothing but vegan and vegetarian cuisine, 
some of the favorites. A lot of people, you know, when they go on these diets in the new year, especially going vegan, they're like, ah, when can I eat these things again? But you have whipped up a beautiful bolognese that is just, it looks magnificent. I've never seen such a fine bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> Um, what I did was I veganized classic recipes, like Italian recipes, French recipes, Asian recipes. But my favorite are Italian recipes. So what I do is I take all these recipes and I take them and I make them gorgeous, gorgeous aromatic recipes, but I veganize them. So instead of using meat products, I used a textured vegetable protein in this, but I used the base of a bolognese. So those are the tomatoes, the carrots, the onions, the garlic, and I touch it off with red wine, of course. I, and I'm looking at this, and honestly, it looks just like what I grew up eating long before I went plant-based. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm even seeing, you know, like you were just saying, the, the, the vegetable protein in there, that looks like regular meat sauce to me. Well, it can be deceiving, but I'm guaranteeing you it's not any meat in there. <laughs> Did, didn't you tell me that uh, there was a chef, an Italian chef, that you fooled with this? Yes, he was from Milan. He kept saying to me that I was lying to him. I said, no, it's the texture of the vegetable protein that has the consistency of meat. It's a trickery, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this. Was this a recipe that you adopted from maybe something that your mother, your grandmother cooked growing up? No. Um, when I um, stayed in Italy for a little while, I learned to create um, a lot of um, Italian recipes and also in school when I was in culinary school. But one of my favorite was bolognese. But I couldn't eat the bolognese because it was made with veal and sausages. So I said, let me create something that vegans and vegetarians can eat without the meat base. And so I came up with the bolognese sauce, but using the textured vegetable protein. Now, you are a classically trained chef. Yes. You clearly know what you're doing. But somebody who's listening to this, watching this online, they may not exactly be a master in the kitchen. So how difficult of a recipe is this? My recipes are very user-friendly. Most of the ingredients that you use, you can find in your pantry easily or at the grocery store on the shelf easily. You don't have to go to a Whole Foods, even though I prefer Whole Foods or Trader <laughs> Joe's. You can find them at any of your commercial grocery stores. And I'm not seeing anything really kind of weird on here at all i mean this is nope. this is really just a classic kind of mm -hmm. recipe what's what's the prep time on this um i would say probably from start to finish 45 minutes that's not bad nope not at all that's not bad. compared to a regular bolognese that could take you hours mm, touche touche and uh definitely a crowd pleaser 45 minutes this is a sauce like this this is something that you can make for you know on a sunday and it, it'll hold for a few days right oh yes and the better the, the the longer the better because all the flavors meld together you eat it two days later and it's just like eating heaven <laughs> i bet i bet you know what we need we need some forks so we can try this but it, it looks absolutely delicious i don't i don't know why we forgot to bring forks in here but we did <laughs> So what uh, what we're going to do here, uh, I'm just going to call an audible. I'm going to hit pause on this. We're going to go get some forks. We're going to come back. You and I are going to sample this. And uh, we're going to give a full review of this wonderful bolognese.
And with the magic of editing, we are back now. So we have uh, switched switched out. Chef Bev is standing in the background, and we've recruited Noah Kaufman, who works down the hall. We needed somebody to come and sample, said uh, Bolognese sauce. So, sir, you have a bowl of spaghetti. I have so, a bowl of spaghetti. And uh, you're a chef yourself, are you not? Uh, maybe an amateur chef. Yeah, close enough. <laughs> so you know your way around the kitchen. So we're going to get a good, honest review from you first. So go ahead and okay. take a bite. Let us know. Okay. He likes it. Oh, this is very, very good. Noah likes so. it. So, yeah, no, give, give the review just here. Get. Yeah, just just talk while I take a bite, please. Oh no, see. So um, now you're taking a bite. See, somebody needs to talk, man. We can't have dead air. Hold on, put the fork down, finish chewing, and then I'm gonna hand the show over to you. It actually tastes like bolognese sauce, um, and I don't know how that's possible. Um, what magic is in this? Um, yeah. As the kids would say, this is on point, Chef Bev. This is just really, really good. And um, a great recipe that really anybody can follow. A great recipe for the new year. I mean, it's, it's cold outside. We've got uh, nice spaghetti. That's that's warm. That's hearty. That's a, that's a good January 1st dish right there. And TVP is really good for you. Is it now? Mm-hmm. See? Yeah, you do know yeah. your way around the kitchen. <laughs> Chef Bev with the Bolognese. We're going to link off to her book, Nouveau V, on our website, pcrm.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll put the recipe up there for you as well as a little New Year's gift to you. Chef Bev, thank you so much for bringing this in. Uh, we're going to have you back again in the future because I know like you have just dozens and dozens of dishes in here, and, and I think, frankly, we need to sample each one. You are listening to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Well, there you have it. You're on your way. It's January 1st, but you know, you are going to feel so great day by day by day. Everything's going to get better. But let me give you one really quick tip. Focus on the short term. For now, don't think about what you're going to do three years from now, four years down the road, five years from now. Just focus on today, this week, maybe three weeks ahead, not more than that. Why do I say that? Because, first of all, it's a daunting thing to think, I'm never, ever, ever going to have another double bacon cheeseburger. Just set that thought aside. But also, when you're focusing on the short term, you're really going to focus. You're really going to give it your all. I only got to do this for three weeks. Great. I'm going to do it 100% vegan. I'm not going to cheat at all. And then you get the maximum power that the foods can give you. And when you see the numbers on the scale getting better and better and better, your energy gets better, your digestion is better, it's so much more rewarding. So focus on the short term, really do it, and the future is going to take care of itself. Thanks for being with us today. <laughs>